Let's uh, pick it up where we left off. We've got a lot of stuff to cover in the uh, next hour. What do we do when we gather? We sing. We do. Uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But then when we pick it up, let's be sure we've got a proper theology of the place of music in worship. So now let's talk about the place of song in New Testament worship. If you look at music in the Gospels and Acts, well, the closest you get is just before the Lord's Supper, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the garden. I wonder what that hymn was. I come to the garden alone. Well, Jesus was very alone, wasn't he? Could you not watch with me one brief hour? I'm sure when Jesus was singing that, it was on the one hand with heavy heart, but on the other hand, probably looking beyond the valley of the shadow of death. He knew what was on the other side. You look in the Gospels, not much about music, is there? Acts, a most amazing, there's little in Acts on music, but there's a most amazing one in Acts 16, 24. Paul and Silas in prison, the Philippian jailer. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in the stocks around midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. What were they singing? I love you, Lord. You know what? I've been to China a couple of times. They know what persecution is. Have you heard our Chinese brothers and sisters pray? You know, we Americans, we say, keep us from persecution. You know what they pray? Why? We are not worthy to be picked for this. Isn't that so different? It is so, the privilege. Paul talks about completing the sufferings of Jesus. <laughs> the privilege of suffering with and for him. It's amazing. That's their response, and I have a feeling that may. If you look in the Pauline epistles, you have a couple of texts. Uh, I don't know if you can read this, but I do read the New Testament. Wonderful stuff here. We've got two texts, Acts 5, or Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Isn't that fabulous? What does Ephesians teach us? about singing. One, music provides an outlet for demonstrating that one is filled with the Spirit. 
It does. We are inspired to sing. Two, music is a means of promoting community in the body of Christ. We sing to one another. I was in a church in Mobile, Alabama for a weekend of, of services, and they had a brand new building, spectacular building. But I was sitting in the front pew, and we were doing, doing congregational song. We were, the congregation was supposedly singing together. I was sitting in the front pew. I could not hear anybody singing, and there were 1,500 people there. The acoustics were so bad. The building was designed so that everything's from the front to promote performers singing. It's fundamentally flawed. It's not about performers. It's about ministering to each other in song singing to one another. It's not about hiring anybody. Singing to one another. Three, music is an expression of thanksgiving to God. Believers need to be thankful in all circumstances. And that's what we do. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And four, whether sung or played, music arising from a thankful heart brings great glory God. I think God sings with us when we sing. Bless his holy name. That's Ephesians. Now let's go back and read the Colossians text. It's even fuller. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with thankfulness in your hearts to God, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father through him. I think Paul remembers what he had told the Ephesians. and He un. He fleshes it out just a little bit more. But what lessons do we have now from Colossians? First, if true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will, that's my explanation, then true worship will be expressed primarily by, this is Colossians, clothing oneself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Did you see that? Two, bearing one another's burdens. Three, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Four, clothing ourselves with love. Now remember what love means. Covenant commitment demonstrated in action in the next person's interest. It's not just, you know, we should all love each other, which means we should have nice feelings about each other, or at least pretend we're smiling. That's not love. Love is always action. You show love, clothing ourselves with love. Letting the peace of Christ rule us. In the worship wars, it's the opposite. You got to sing my songs or I can't sing. Really. Being thankful. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly and conducting our lives in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God through... That's worship. That's Colossians. And now we can get to music. If this is all in place, then go ahead, sing. 
In the tradition of Moses and the prophets, Paul reminds Colossian believers that truly worshipful music is preconditioned by truly worshipful living. My life is the song. Truly worshipful music binds believers to Christ and to another, one another. Colossians. Three, worshipful music is an expression not only of Christ's reign of peace. Let the peace of Christ reign in you, but also of the richly indwelling Word of Christ. Truly worshipful music is Trinitarian. Both of these be filled with the Spirit, praising God in the name of the Son. Truly worshipful music arises from grateful hearts. Truly worshipful music is rich in variety. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What does that mean? I mean, your exegetes will go and give you dictionary definitions of all of these words and try and categorize them. I think song, psalms is one thing. That's the Psalter. Hymns, these are probably special compositions in praise of the attributes and the actions of God. Spiritual songs, I think, are spontaneous, emotional outbursts of gratitude for God's grace. Odes, the Greek word is odes, I think. But why three words? It's interesting. Have you ever, have you ever looked at how the Bible uses three words? Well, you can have Isaiah 6, in the year the king of Zidai saw the Lord, and these seraphim were shouting antiphonally to one another, holy, 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 three times. Why three? Of course, our theologians tell us that's Trinitarian. Really? No, three. You, do, you say a word three times if you want to express the superlative degree, the highest. It's another way of doing song of songs means the most beautiful song. King of kings, the highest king. Lord of lords, book of books. <laughs> it's superlative. You can also say that's a book, book, book. The best book. Holy, holy. But you also do it with three words. I love Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives your iniquity, your transgression, and your sin. Three words. Why three? Every kind of sin. It's the whole picture. And so here, every kind of song. Rich in variety. He's not telling us only to sing the Psalter as the Reformed and the Puritans were wont to do. I think we should, it's a good place to start. But every culture will have songs in its idiom. The Psalter is written in Hebrew idiom. How, how about if you're in, in South Africa with the Zulus? They don't know Hebrew. They have their own. So I think it's rich and creative, whatever else. Music and Revelation. I'm not going to pause here. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the worship service tomorrow, music and revelation. That's David Peterson talks about the revelation as heavenly worship. It's not earthly worship. It's a picture of ultimate worship. 
But he then says, look, if we're going to be spending eternity worshiping, let's practice now. So I think that ultimate model gives us a model for our rehearsals, which is what we're doing. Place of music and worship today. Just a quick list of principles on how we should handle music issues. One, evangelicals must recover music and song as expressions of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. We've got to rediscover it. You know, I've noticed that people don't sing anymore. Have you noticed? And the more powerful the worship band is, the less people sing. And the more complicated and complex the new songs are, the less people sing. We need music that is true, but singable, easily picked up, easily learned, so that we can sing together. That's the point. And our churches needed to, need to be designed so that the people feel like they're all singing because we're in this together. It's not about the performers. It's not about the preacher. It's not about anybody up here. It's about y'all in Louisvillean accent. Two, evangelicals must recover the centrality of Christ and the cross in their music. I mean, it's, it's great to sing Our God Reigns, Our God Reigns, and all the rest of it. But my former dean, Millard Erickson, did a study, and this is now 15, 20 years ago, of the words of contemporary music then, and he found a woeful absence of the cross. Why? Because we want music to feel, we want our music to feel better our, about ourselves. And the moment I talk about the cross, I have to talk about my sin. That's the problem. But of course, our songs these days are about, I'm okay, you're okay, let's celebrate. No, we're not. We're a mess. And if it weren't for the cross, we have nothing to sing about. The cross. Three, evangelicals must rediscover that the goal of congregational worship in all ministry is the glory of God. God the Father, God the Son are most glorified when we sing of them and not of ourselves. We're not singing about ourselves, singing about ourselves. Four, evangelicals must rediscover that God approves of music that is rich in content and varied in style. I don't, my taste, I don't like everything that people are doing these days. But between you and me and the fence posts, life is too short to get all sour about that. I want to bless people, whatever. And you know how we, at the end of a course, I teach every other year at Wheaton, this coming year, will the last course I teach at Wheaton College before I retire after next semester will be on worship with undergrads. I don't work much with undergrads. But the last time I taught the course, at the end of the course, one of the students in the class said, when we go home now, and of course, after taking the course, they realize everything they do at home is wrong. That's scary. And after our discussion of music, one of the guys, and he's a great musician, he asked, well, when we go home now, what shall we do? You know what I suggested? 
Why don't you go to somebody in your church who's 65 years old and ask, which song is your favorite that I could sing for you? It changes everything. So it's no longer about my taste, it's about ministering to your taste. And that will invite the older people, when the young people are singing, say, which song would you like me to sing with you? It's so different. But we become so self-centered. It's about my taste. Do it my way. If you're not going to sing it my way, I won't sing. And so We've got it so upside down. All kinds of music. All kinds of music. Five. Did we have a five already? Yeah, five. Evangelicals must realize that although music is fundamental to worship, music is not to be equated with worship. Praise and worship. No, well, how about lament and worship? Again, the week of 9-11, I was preaching in a church. The musician, the, the worship minister, 9-11 happened on a Tuesday, didn't it? You know where you were. We all do. It's a Tuesday. And I, got, I, I typically got my sermons ready on a Monday. I did my homework, and then it cooked all week. By Friday, all kinds of things had happened, and the preparation I did on Monday was totally irrelevant. These people aren't interested in Ezra 4, whatever I was preaching on. I changed the sermon. How do you minister to people who have come to worship, to weep, and to ask, why? Where is God in this? That's a proper question. It is. And there were 30 or 40% more people in church that following Sunday than any other church across this country. Those people didn't come to praise, but our worship minister said, let's just praise the Lord anyhow. No, you don't do that. And he didn't change one song. That's rude. That's wrong. Minister to people who are crying and hurting. What happened? Give us something that we can take home to nurture our souls in the midst of crisis. Praise and worship. For every psalm of praise in the Psalter, there are two of lament. That's life. On any given Sunday, 30% of you have had an awful week. But we pretend it's like nothing's happened and then wonder why we're irrelevant. We must give people a voice to cry that we can cry with them. It's not just about praise. Evangelicals must realize that although music is fundamental to biblical worship, music should not... Oh, I said that twice. If you don't have enough to talk about, you say everything twice. <laughs> Seven. Evangelicals must rediscover that truly worshipful music is primarily congregational and unites the body of Christ. Not doesn't divide. Evangelicals must distinguish between worship and entertainment. You know, we expect this to be what happens on Friday night when we go to a concert. This isn't a concert. A concert can be worship, 
I hope so. I love concerts. But this is not that. This is celebrating in the presence of God in all kinds of ways. Evangelicals, uh, leaders, leaders must rediscover the primary purpose of worship, an audience with God, and lead in ways that support that agenda, including our music. We need to hear God speak in our music so that our songs are profoundly theological, deep, declaring eternal truths. Well, music. Let's change topics. What else do we do in worship? Well, there are several things in the New Testament they do. Now we're going to the New Testament. Long before we talk about music in worship or anything else we do in worship, we have to talk about the ordinances. The New Testament prescribes very little for worship, but there are two prescriptions we have. One is baptism, which is the rite of initiation into the people of God, and the assumption is if you haven't been baptized, you're not at home in worship. So, baptism is the rite of initiation. And, of course, the baptism, uh, the New Testament practice of baptism as a rite of initiation is, in a sense, the equivalent of the Old Testament rite of circumcision. Every Jew, it was expected, on the eighth day they would be circumcised. But it's, we're baptistic. We don't go that way the whole way, but in principle, it is the rite of initiation so that every normal Christian will be a baptized Christian. The New Testament uses this concept of baptism almost interchangeably with conversion. It's a fundamental part of the conversion experience. It's not baptismal regeneration. Your pastor has told you that, and he's right on. It's not baptismal regeneration, but it is regeneration declared publicly and embodied physically in the rite of baptism. And so, in my view, it is with enough water. In any case, this can create a problem, though, Circumcision create a problem. Even to this day, our Jewish friends think we're keeping kosher, we are circumcised, we uh, keep the festivals, therefore we are descendants of Abraham, therefore we're automatically in the covenant. There are people who treat baptism that way. I've been in several churches where we had baptisms every other Sunday. What happens with these people? They're baptized, and you never see them again. They're in the front door, and then they're out the back door. It can be exactly the same problem as circumcision. I've been through the motions, therefore, I, my name is on the rolls. I must be a Christian. But I never worship with God's people. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. So, we can have two churches. There's the external churches. I mean, on, 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 on those forms you fill out for the government, what's your religion? Christian. Really? 
again, the week of 9-11, I was flying to Kansas City every Sunday, and the, 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 the Saturday after 9-11, there were three of us on the plane. Actually, four. There was myself, a woman from Pakistan, and two of her kids, teenagers, and I was sitting beside one of them. And we had just taken off, and this young chap was going like this. He's from Pakistan. And when he was done, I said, are you all right? Pretending to think, I, I thought he was sick. I knew what he was doing. And that started a long conversation. They were moving to Kansas City. His father was already here. But they're Muslims from Pakistan. And uh, when I told him, look, when you walk down the street, probably not one in ten is a real Christian. He was shocked. In his view, Las Vegas is Christian. Hollywood is Christian. The New York Strip is Christian. And he was shocked to discover that I am as offended by a lot of this stuff as the Muslims are. That's not Christian. This is the problem. You have two, two churches. There's the name church and the real church. You had two Israels. There's the real church, there's the, real, there's the physical Israel, and then there's Caleb and Joshua. They're the real deal. Who are circumcised in heart as well as in flesh. And that's always the problem. The solution is the circumcision of the heart. Um, I'm going to go on then to the other New Testament ordinance, and that is the Lord's Supper. And I have to spend some time here because the baptism is a one-off deal. Oh, we observe it regularly. But in, in my view, we've got the two ordinances turned around. In my view, baptism is a public thing whereby we declare our faith to the world, the ordinances are a private thing, whereby we as a family celebrate what Christ has done for us. So that's why I think in some ways we do these two things wrong. I, I know we're Baptists and we have a baptistry here. We've brought it inside. Where should it be? When my grandfather was saved, they were living in the Ukraine, over Christmas he was saved and he wanted to be baptized. What you can do? They chopped a hole in the ice and they baptized him. That's serious. It's public. Let the world know we have died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ. Let the world know. My father used to say, nobody's ever going to get sick from that. And besides, if it does, it's your time, it's okay. To be with the Lord is better than to be here anyhow. So, in any case. The, and the Lord's Supper we've made public. 
you know, in, a, in our services. We tend to do the Lord's Supper Sunday morning because that's when most people will be there. Think about it. That's when most people who shouldn't be participating will be there. And we pressure people into eating unworthily. I mean, if you're a visitor and the stuff is stuff, to them it's stuff, and it's going by you and everybody's taking, what are you going to do? I was in a church in Louisville, that big church, uh, Southeast Christian. We were there for a Sunday morning service with some of my people in the worship class just to observe. All of a sudden, without announcement, during one of the songs, they were passing the stuff, passing the, the, bre the, the bread and the cup without comment. So what in the world is going on? And everybody was taking Everybody, thousands of people. It's a mega church. There's something wrong with this picture. God did, the Lord didn't institute his supper out in public. This is a private meal. It's for us. It is the most sacred thing we can do to celebrate Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's my song, not the world's. It troubles me that every time, you know, a pagan out there dies, they sing that song. There's something wrong with that picture. It's our song. That's what we celebrate when we gather. This is the one Worship act the New Testament commands. And it's the one we've trivialized. When I was growing up in small country church, uh, if you missed two communion services, the deacons would call. Not in a disciplinary sense, and they'd call and say, Are you all right? You've missed. It's the most important thing we can do is to break bread together. It's the theology of remembrance. In eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, we remind ourselves every time we do this, this is who we are, this is how we got here. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. It's the most important thing we can, it's far more important than hearing a sermon every Sunday morning. The Bible never tells us, the New Testament never tells us to have our sermon every Sunday. But it does tell us to break bread together. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to give you a quick picture. What, what does the Lord's Supper mean? A quick lesson on the theology of the Lord's Supper. We tend to think the Lord's Supper is the Christian Passover. And it is on the night when they were slaughtering the lambs for the Passover. Jesus instituted it. So that Jesus is the substitute Passover lamb. So whenever we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, that's what we're celebrating. 
Jesus died that I might live. You remember the story in Exodus? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When God sees the blood of Christ applied to me, the judgment passes over. That's Passover. But there's more to the Lord's Supper than Passover. This is also the covenant ratification ceremony. If you look in the Matthew version of that text, you will see the, uh, let's see, uh, take, uh, no, we're, we're here. If this is the new covenant in my blood. Where's that expression come from? There's only one place in the Old Testament where it could come from. Exodus 24, at Sinai. After revealing to them, uh, or after calling Israel to himself in this great audience with them and saying, we are now making the covenant, then he says in the covenant ratification ceremony, this is the new covenant of my blood. This is the blood by which God's commitment to Israel is sealed. Remember the ceremony? They sprinkle, they sprinkle the altar first. Whom does the altar represent? God. And by sprinkling the blood on the altar, God is hereby saying, by my life I commit myself to you. May I die if I ever break my oath. Ooh, really? That's the blood of the covenant. And then after that, they read the revealed will again once more, and then they sprinkle it on the people. And this binds the people to God. Jesus says when he institutes the Lord's Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood by which God seals his commitment to us. Jesus does that. And third, it's a sin offering. Did you know that the Passover lamb had nothing to do with sin? It didn't. That offering was not a sin offering. It's just a substitute. When I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over and I'll get you out of here. But Matthew adds, for the remission of your sin. And now we discover that this that the Lord's Supper is actually a beautiful helix bringing together three wonderful gospel threads. It is Passover, it is covenant, and it is atonement. Brilliant tying together of the whole Old Testament gospel. That's why I'm looking forward to the end of Revelation. I'm looking forward to that last supper that we will eat together. What a climactic moment that will be. So, the Lord's Supper, the significance of the Lord's Supper. This is what we do when we gather. There's nothing more important for us. The best church experience my wife and I ever had was when we were in England. We were with the brethren. They didn't call themselves Plymouth Brethren. 
but they were the brethren. They break bread every Sunday, every Sunday. So in, at that point, 9 o'clock service was the breaking of bread service. And then after that, there was a break, and then we had family service, and that was their outreach. But every week we gathered to break bread, to eat and to drink, to pray and to sing. It was a spontaneous thing. Somebody would suggest a song and somebody would read a scripture. I used to think, well, what a waste. This is chaos. No, it's not. God always guided those conversations. We did this every week. And when we got home, I went into withdrawal. We don't have, we don't break the bread every week. And of course, that raises the question, how often should we do this? There's debate about this. Once a month, once a quarter, whatever. The important thing is we should do it regularly. Right? This is the most important thing we can do together. Because in eating the bread and drinking the cup, we together celebrate the gospel at its core. We keep reminding ourselves how we got here. And it's all grace through the work of Christ. The significance of the Lord's Supper. Well, I must move on. One more topic are we going to 12? Oh, then I do have more time. It's ten, is it 10 o'clock? We start at 8. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the Lord, significance of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll go on to the, the Word, the ministry of the Word in worship. A, a few more comments about the significance of the Lord's Supper. In the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, believers celebrate the founding of the church as the new Israel of God. It's okay, I think, to call ourselves the new Israel of God. We are grafted in, and this is what's happened to us, too. The Lord's Supper affords the believers a supreme opportunity for regular Christian worship in His presence. Jesus said to His disciples, and did you notice He served them? What, what an honor for the disciples to be there. That's why it's such a great honor. It will be such a great delight, ultimately, when in his very presence we will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's the divine host, and he invites us to eat in his presence. Because the Lord's Supper has its roots in the Passover, the covenant ratification ceremony, and the sin offering participation in the observance is reserved for believers. We need to, what the Reformers called or the Puritans called, fence the table. This is not for everybody. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. If you are not right with God and right with your brother or your sister, we eat unworthily and drink damnation to ourselves. And we who lead in worship have to be careful that we're not accomplices in the crime by inviting people who really shouldn't be participating. It's for believers. Four, in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, believers celebrate the covenant of peace that God has made through the blood of the cross and anticipate the peace they will celebrate at the marriage supper. On the one hand, it's memorial. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance. 
But on the other hand, it's anticipation. Until he comes. It's eschatological. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. One of these days, with people from every tribe and nation, we will celebrate. Although 1 Corinthians 11 highlights the gravity of participation in the Lord's Supper, calling worshipers to examine themselves, this meal is a Eucharist. In our Baptistic tradition, we don't like this word. It sounds too sacramental. But the word really means thanksgiving. That's what it is. It's the greatest thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for what? Saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation soul. It depends where you live. Full and free, that's nice alliteration. Rich and free, whatever. It's both, both and. Thank you. That's the Eucharist. That's what we do. It's a thank you. Um, of course, this supper is called breaking of bread. It's called communion. It's called the Eucharist, whatever, whatever you call it. It is the most important thing we do together. Did you hear that? It is the most important thing we do together, which is why we really need to highlight its special significance. My own sense is that, really, we need to have separate services for this because the Sunday morning service is where most people will come to church, whether they're regenerate or not. That's the time not to have it. And if people really treasure their salvation, they'll come to celebrate in a special moment. So I actually prefer if we do this on a Sunday night, a special service, celebration, whatever. And we need to find ways of making it celebrative in that. In my view, rather than tacking it on at the end of a service, I think that trivializes it. It is bigger than that. One more topic, hearing and proclaiming the Scriptures in worship. We're, we're Protestants. And uh, outside the Anglican circles, or we, we should say in some Lutheran circles, the liturgical churches, where the table is the center of the liturgy. That's what we've just been talking about, Hi, trying to highlight the table as the center of the liturgy. In Reformed Protestantism, the pulpit has become the symbol of Protestant worship. And, of course, the pulpit represents the Word, the proclamation of the Word. So now let's talk about the place of hearing and proclaiming the Scriptures in worship. What place should this have? 
Well, if true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and accordance with his will, I suppose that gracious revelation of himself is important, isn't it? How will you know your worship is true if you never hear God talk? Again, this is an audience with God. So whatever else we do, we must give mouth to God. And at the same time, open our ears to his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And in our traditions, Protestant traditions, the pulpit is the key to hearing the voice of God. I don't think it's the only way. I think it can happen in prayer. Did you know that the Psalter is a book of prayers before it's a book of hymns and songs? Most of these were prayers arising out of everyday life or prayers composed for worship before they were set to music. So prayer is a fundamental part of it. But now we're talking about how does God's voice get heard? And in our tradition, it is primarily through the Scriptures. If worship is an audience with God, then the subject, this subject of the Scriptures in worship is crucial. The key to transformation in worship is the encounter with God. The key to the encounter with God is his revelation of himself. What we often do is we craft clever sermons, and then at the end we say, wasn't that a great sermon? And you miss the point. It's not about the great sermon. It's about, did you hear the voice of God? Or we do that with the music. Wasn't that great music? And we're so impressed with the musician. No, it's not about the musicians. Did God get through? The key to encounter with God is his revelation. The key to God's revelation of himself is the hearing of his voice. And then the key to the hearing to hearing God's voice is the hearing is hearing the scriptures. Now, of course, in the medieval world, which was largely a preliterate world, people couldn't read. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have their own copies. It was too expensive to make them. So what was their Scripture? This is why churches were designed with pictures all around. Because in an illiterate world, that's the story. And in England, and it took a particular form. If you look at the paradigm in England, churches tended to face east. There's a theological reason for that. We'll talk about this tomorrow. They tended to face east. And then on the north side of the walls, the Anglican churches, or formerly Roman Catholic, you had Old Testament pictures. And on the south side, you had New Testament pictures. Why? Because in their theology, the Old Testament was dark devoid of gospel. And the New Testament is full of gospel. I got a problem with that one. But in any case, <laughs> the key to hearing God's voice is hearing the Scriptures. And if you can't read the Scriptures and you come early to church, you want to meditate on the Scriptures, look at the pictures. And that's 
That's the function of that kind of design of church building. Note, while preaching the message of Scripture is important, though, this is a shocker to many people. The Scriptures weren't written to be preached. They were written to be heard. Did you hear that? I said that deliberately. God did not inspire the authors of Scripture primarily so that we preachers would have a text to expound before you. He inspired the authors of Scripture so that in their writing, they were writing the sermon. The Scriptures are the Word of God. Not my silly comments on the Scripture. I've given you all kinds of silly ideas here between yesterday and today, and we'll have a few more tomorrow yet. But I want you to be totally Berean. You remember the Bereans. Check everything I say against the Scripture to see whether these things be true. Because in the end, it's not the preacher's commentary on Scripture that has any authority. It is the Scriptures. The Scriptures. This is our base of authority. And the Scriptures were written to be heard. When I teach the book of Deuteronomy, right now we're doing, well, right now we're actually doing Ezekiel. Before the course started, I had every student in the exegesis class read the whole book of Ezekiel out loud. And technically, that's not quite right either because the Scriptures weren't written for me to be for myself to read. They were written for me to hear somebody else read them in community. We'll talk about that paradigm in a, in a bit. But this is the sermon. The prophets are the sermon. The former prophets in the Jewish canon, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, call the former prophets. It is the sermon. So that when you read the story of, well, that miserable story about the Levite and his concubine whom he cuts up, and at the end of that horrible chapter, there is something like, listen, everybody, speak up. And if you're reading that out loud, you will scream it. What's wrong in Israel? Hear the sermon. Everyone's doing what's evil in his own eyes. And this is what you get. We're back in Sodom. Wake up. The scriptures are the sermon. That's what we need to hear. We don't do so well there, do we? especially not in evangelical Protestant churches. If you want to hear lots of Scripture, you have to go to a liberal church. It's part of the liturgy. And they always have a, an Old Testament text and a New Testament reading. At least they've got Scripture. But we read one verse very quickly and very badly, and then we're off on our ideas about that verse. Think about it. For the most part, biblical texts are the sermon, the Scriptures. When we talk to our Jewish friends, you know, they've got the Torah scroll. That's their Scripture. 
with our debates with our Jewish friends uh, at Wheaton College, once a semester, half a dozen of us faculty, or maybe a dozen sometimes, meet with a half a dozen or ten Jewish rabbis of different tradition. We talk texts together. We read texts together. One time we were reading Romans 9, 10, and 11 together. And in our exposition of Romans 9, 10, and 11, I was making the point Paul makes in Romans 10, 13. I do read the New Testament. Paul quotes Joel, and he says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And one of my colleagues re re referred to the allusions to Isaiah 53 in Paul's gospel all over the place. And what had our Jewish friends, what was their response? Oh, that's the prophets. There's nothing about the Messiah in the Torah. The proof texts are all from the prophets. Therefore, we don't need to take them seriously. It's the Torah that matters. So, in the Jewish tradition, there's a canon within a canon. So, they've got the Torah readings for every synagogue worship service. That's the most important part, the Torah. The, uh, this is a Torah scroll that they found in Bologna. I was there last April to help celebrate the discovery of this Torah scroll at the university. I gave a lecture on what is the Torah? And in this august audience, I was able to declare that the Torah is not really a scroll. It's a text with a brilliant gospel message. It was a great, a, a great joy to be there at the university. In Jewish worship, I, I, let's read this. Jeffrey Tige, who was on our campus last week to give us a lecture on Jewish his, the history of Jewish interpretation of the command to wipe out the Canaanites. If you Google Jeffrey Tige on, on, on the Internet, you can find his discussion of the use of the Torah in Jewish worship. And this is taken right off there. In Jewish worship, the Torah is carried in procession when it is taken out of the ark, that is the room behind, to be read, and when it is returned there after the reading. Like a king, an Ashkenazi, that's European Torah, uh, European tradition, an Ashkenazi Torah is dressed up in a mantle, belt and crown. You've seen some pictures of these fancy Torah scrolls, as if this is the king complete with crown at the end of the scroll, and royal and, and purple. The Torah is housed in an ark, which the tradition, traditional Jewish sources is called the Hekal, the palace, the temple. And we pray facing the ark. Ashkenazi, European tradition, Torahs indicate what the biblical ark indicates. Access to God is not gained by means of idols, but through the Torah and its commandments. In other words, the Torah and its commandments are more than a book and a series of rules and customs. They are a way of establishing a relationship with God and coming to know Him. You know, this is a part of the problem. Elsewhere in this little piece, he says, in the processions, the way the uh, the rabbis carry the Torah is the way pagans in their worship carry the images of their gods. 
And isn't that exactly the problem? I read in the rabbis, I think it's Rabbi Yohanan, who says, with reference to a verse in Jeremiah, Oh, that my people would abandon me and keep my laws. Really? Isn't that exactly the problem? It's as if keeping the laws is religion. That's idolatry. It's really the opposite. All that my people would come to me, ah, and then demonstrate their fidelity by keeping the laws. Back to Deuteronomy 10. What does the Lord God require of you? Keep the laws? No. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. Love him. Serve him. Oh, and then keep. You know, it's number five of five. The use of the Torah. You know, we in our traditions have something to learn from the Jews, and that is the Torah is important. But we very quickly skip over to the prophets and the Psalms. In fact, we treat the Psalms as if they were the Torah. The Psalter is, in fact, divided into five books, as if this is the Pentateuch, you know, in imitation. And so some of us, when we read Psalm, nine, uh, Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who walk, walks not in the counsel of the unrighteous, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night, and whoever does this will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The, the way we interpret that is that this is referring to the Psalms that are to come. This is the law of the Lord. The, Saul, the people who wrote the Psalms would not be impressed. This is not an invitation to, to treat the book of Psalms as if it were the supreme scripture. It's an invitation on how to read the Torah in actual fact. If we will not treat the Torah, Pentateuch, as our scripture, we have no business claiming the Psalms. Did you hear that? If the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is not my scripture, when the psalmists speak of how I love your Torah, O Lord, they're not thinking, talking about psalms. So, in our Gideon New Testament, I used to be a Gideon. I taught school for two years, and while I was teaching school, I could do this. I mean, ordained people can't be Gideons just as well, but in, in, in any case. I, I, right now, I'm a bit embarrassed about what some things Gideons do. I love the organization. My father-in-law was a Gideon all his life, and I mean, he lived for the Gideons. I, I bless him for that. But on what grounds do they give out a New Testament, and then they attach to it the Psalms and Proverbs? It's a fundamental problem as if the Psalms and the Proverbs are Christian Scripture, but the rest is not. No, without, without the Pentateuch, you can't understand the Psalms or the Proverbs, and you have no basis claiming them as your own. So it's all Scripture we need. Why is this important? 
turn to Deuteronomy 31. Actually, we do need another break, don't we? Well, let me finish this one, and then we'll break. Deuteronomy 31. This is a great text. After Moses had given his three addresses in this final worship service, what does he do? Look at verse 9. So Moses wrote this Torah, and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of the Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the festival of booths, a coath, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at that place where he will choose, you shall preach this. Is that what it says? What does it say? You shall read this in front of the whole assembly, and they're hearing. Assemble the people, the men, women, children, alien who's in your town, so they may hear to learn, to fear the Lord your God, and to be careful to observe all the words of this Torah as long as you live. This is a simple formula you have in Deuteronomy. It's reflected in this diagram, if we can bring it up here somewhere. Hearing the Torah is the key to life. Did you see that? Over, this, this happens repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy. You've got this formula. It's, I call it the formula for life. The goal is living. That you may live, that you may flourish, that you may fulfill the calling God has for you. How do you get there? Here it is. Read this Torah, that they may hear, that they may learn, that they may fear, that they may obey, that they may live. It's a chain reaction. And this is why I alluded to Malachi before. Everything is wrong in Malachi's world. Why? There's no fear of God in this place. How do you recover the fear of God? That's what, people are living wrongly because, well, they're not living, and they're not obeying, they're not fearing. Right at the end of the book, he says, back to the Torah. Back to the Torah. Back to the Torah. That's the point. You hear the Scriptures. I mean, somebody reads. The Scriptures weren't written for us all to have a Bible in our hands. The Scriptures weren't written for personal devotions. So when the psalmist says, in his law he meditates day and night, it's because he has heard the Scriptures together in community along with everybody else. And then we go our ways and we meditate on what we have heard. And this common hearing binds us together. We are all hearing the voice of God. When we hear, we learn about God. What do we learn? Have you read the book of Deuteronomy lately? To us, Deuteronomy is a book of laws. That's what Deuteronomy means, second law. Bad choice by the Septuagint translators. 
It starts out, the book starts out with, these are the words. Not, this is, these are the commands. These are words. And what follows is preaching at its finest. And all the way through, it is preaching of the gospel. And all you need to do is look at the Ten Commandments. Your word, again, for this document, not mine. The Decalogue, ten words. How does it start? It doesn't start with, you shall have no other gods. That's not the first word. What's the first word? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the gospel. The gospel always comes before command. Always. You have this already in chapter 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of all these laws that we keep? Then you shall say, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. I didn't ask about that. I wanted the, what's the laws, the guy says. And Moses says, we'll get there. We were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand, with signs and wonders, and he's taking us to the land that he promised to the answers. I didn't ask about that. I asked about the laws. And Moses' response is, I can't talk about laws without talking about gospel first. Because gospel always precedes law. And when you hear Deuteronomy read aloud, you will hear the refrain all the way through, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, over and over and over again. And then he's encouraging people, in the light of your great salvation, how shall we live? What does the Lord your God require of you? Love him, serve him, joyfully worship him. Fearing God depends on hearing God. And when we hear, we learn how to fear. I'm convinced that in Deuteronomy, which uses the word for believe, trust, only once or twice, faith. Actually, the word for fear, the word for fear functions as the word for faith. Remember, Genesis 22, now the Lord tested Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, it's very clear which of the boys, <laughs> Isaac, but the opening line is, after these things the Lord tested Abraham, did you notice that? After what things? What's happened in chapter 21? God had just said, in Isaac, not in Ishmael, the promises will be fulfilled. He had just said the seed of Sarah is the key to the future. And now he specifies, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and he names him, and offer him as a whole burnt offering. Now that's a test. Test of what? It's a test of faith. Now, the word faith isn't used in this context. Unlike chapter seven, 17, Abraham believed God and he counted, it's chapter 15, he believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word isn't used here. But remember what Abraham does? He takes Isaac and he leaves a servant at the base of the mountain and they're walking up the hill and Isaac says, Daddy, we got the fire and the wood. Where's the offering? 
What does Abraham say? You're it, buddy. No, he doesn't say that. You can't. As a father, you can't. And then the, the text goes into great detail about how he built the altar, he placed the wood on the altar, he bound Isaac, and then he's about to... Anybody here been to the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg? Rembrandt's Sacrifice of Isaac. I mean, indelibly imprinted in my mind. The angel grabs his hand just on time. And what does the angel of the Lord say to Abraham? Now I know that you trust God. Doesn't say that. What does it say? Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your only son from me. This is trust. This is faith. God put Abraham in an impossible box with no doors and no windows. If Abraham keeps it, the promise is done because it's in Isaac. If Abraham doesn't keep it, the promise is gone because he flunked the test. It's a real test, so what are you going to do? Abraham says that's God's problem. And God solved it. Now I know that you fear God, which is why in Deuteronomy this word means trusting awe or awed trust. Not O-D-D, A-W-E-D, awed trust. This is Deuteronomy's word for faith. Faith working itself out in love. This is, read, people come to hear the word of God that they might learn to fear him because they hear the story of his past works. They hear of his commitment to Israel, which is irrevocable, and they hear of his promise, ultimately, to fulfill every promise. And in the reading of the Scripture, you give them a thousand illustrations of how God has proved himself true in the past. And this stimulates awe fear, trust, confidence. That's why it's important. We don't preach to entertain people. I mean, for some of us, when we prepare sermons, our question is, how can I keep everybody's attention for 30 minutes? And so, by the time we're done, we've had lots of nice stories and all the rest of it. We kept everybody's attention. And we go to the back and shake people's hands, and they say, that's a great, that's a great story a great sermon. I didn't sleep. And that's our goal. And we forget how carnal our people are. They come to be entertained. We can't go there. We can't go there. We are here to promote faith and trust. And it is in the hearing of Scripture that we do that. We need to learn a few things about this for our 
evangelical Protestant worship. We don't read enough Scripture. We read everything else. We quote from Kierkegaard and all the, all the big boys. But we need to read long texts of Scripture, not just bits and fragments, not just a verse. I teach a class um, at, at our church on Deuteronomy. We're sixth, and we started our sixth year on Deuteronomy. It's brilliant gospel. The people just love it because they hear the voice of God. A long time ago, when we first started, after a couple of introductory sessions, I read chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 without comment. And then I asked the people, what did God say to you? It was amazing. This past Sunday, we were on chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, the Leveret marriage. Isn't that fascinating? It's an interesting custom, but it's a profound theology. We didn't finish the topic. We got five verses. We, we only introduced the topic. What I did was I read this passage, and then I picked Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, where you've got this kind of leveret marriage at issue. I read the whole thing. I think it's about 38, 39 verses. I read the whole thing. And then I went to the book of Ruth, chapters 4 and 5, where you got the leveret marriage as that issue. Again, I read the whole thing. Well, that took almost all the time. And I told the people at the beginning, I haven't had time to prepare a Sunday school lesson this, morning, this week, so I'm just reading Scripture. And they know better by now. It's a very deliberate rhetorical device. After reading these three texts, and I stood back and I say, what did God say to you? And the people picked up stuff that I had never thought of. I mean, in that chapter 38 text, Judah and Tamar, Judah has a, a son who, who dies before there's a child. And Ur, I think Er is the next guy in line. He refused to marry his brother's widow, so the Lord killed him. That's what the text says. One of the people in the congregation picked it up. To God, family is so important that if you're not on page, God will kill you. Really? I needed somebody else to highlight that. We're not the only interpreters of Scripture. Other people, when they hear, and the point is, they heard this together. So after the Sunday school class, everybody was talking about the Scripture we heard. Never seen that before. Never heard that before. Oh, what about this? And so they're not responding to my comments. They're wrestling with the Word of God. And that's what we need to do, which is why we need to do better in our reading. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach. I'm all for expositor preaching. Rick knows that. I was at Master's Seminary this summer to give three days of lectures on expository preaching. But we can jump over the important hearing of Scripture too quickly and we don't do too well here. 
let me move quickly to implications for the use of Scripture in worship today. <clears throat> and I'm just going to summarize my conclusions, and then we'll break, and then we'll talk about leaders in worship. This is the scary one, because now I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm asking myself, if God has called me to lead in worship, what does that mean? And the interesting thing is, in Deuteronomy 16, 17, 18, God instructs the Israelites on what their leaders should be like. We have a tendency to deal with these topics only with church leaders. That's a problem. The whole congregation needs to have a theology of leadership so that we encourage one another to faith and good works. And we understand what's involved here. It's not just for the leaders who then carry out what the leaders know to be true. No, the people need to understand it. This is where Deuteronomy goes with all of this. And so we'll talk about leaders in worship. But now let's talk about Implications for the use of scriptures today. If we can get to the slide, it's, 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 it's farther along. Here we go. One, evangelicals must rediscover that the scriptures were written to be heard. They were not written primarily to be preached. I started out there. This has all kinds of implications, though. If the scriptures were written to be heard, what does that mean? We'll come back and talk about this. Evangelicals must rediscover that in hearing the Scriptures, worshipers hear the voice of God. We've, you know, there's this chain of revelation. God spoke to the prophet. He preached to the people. Somebody wrote it down, and then we have translations of what was written down, and then we have... Uh, commentaries written on what was written down, and then the preacher reads the commentaries and he creates his sermon, and then the person preaches it. How far are we removed from way up there? There are so many layers here. Let's take the people as close to the top as we can and simply give them the Scripture. Let them hear what God says. So we need to rediscover that in hearing Scripture, people hear the voice of God and take deliberate action to ensure that this happens by paying attention to how the Scriptures are read. You know, we tend to do this so badly when we preach. And I'm, this is autobiographical. We pick a short text, and then we quickly, we read it quickly because we want to get on to the sermon. That's the center of gravity of our worship. Without realizing there are some flaws in this approach. And so, what will we do to fix that? Here are some suggestions, and this may, take it or leave it, these are my idiosyncratic reflections on so what? How do we fix the problem? One, I think we need to devote more time to reading the Scriptures. It's the tack-on at the front end. 
in our church where we are now some Sunday mornings, the only Scripture you will hear read, I mean, we wouldn't even have a call to worship from the Psalms on occasion. Not always this way. But sometimes in our church, the only Scripture you hear is one verse, Romans 7, 1. And then we actually, we had, I think it was Romans 4, 1 or whatever, three sermons on Romans 4, 1. And every Sunday, this one verse was read. And I said, what? The Bible wasn't written in verses. There's a context. I did a five-part series on Isaiah 53 somewhere in northern New York for a weekend, you know, preparation for Easter. Isaiah 53, fabulous text. It breaks down into five parts, uh, each of which develops one aspect of the servant's ministry. Before every sermon, I read the whole chapter so that by the time we were done, the people had the whole of Isaiah 53 ringing in their ears. It's not taken in isolation. We need to read large blocks of Scripture at Wheaton at the college a couple of years ago, just before Easter, they put one of the music students in charge of a chapel service. Well, actually, he asked, he had been in my worship class the previous year, and he asked the chaplain if he could design a service of worship for 2,000 college students. What did we do? What, what did he do? And he said, I, I'm going to work with Block on this, and we're going to design a service. It's just before Easter, the week, the Passion Week. He had an opening song, very well chosen, then, an op then a prayer, and then another song, and then we had Scripture. I read John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, to 18. We had company from England, that, and they came to the chapel service. They said, I've never seen anything like that. By the time we were done, 2,000 college kids, you could have heard a pin drop. They were so caught up in the Scripture. It is the sermon. Read the whole chunk Third, we need to promote an atmosphere of reverence. When Ezra, in that great worship service, Nehemiah 8, when he picked up the book, everybody stood. Why? I mentioned yesterday, God doesn't speak to people sitting down. It's out of deference and respect that we stand when God's voice is heard. His mouth is open. I'm not, I'm not prescribing. I'm just saying. We need to promote the expository reading of Scripture. We talk about expository preaching. I'm talking about expository reading, which means that when I read a Scripture, the people get the point. So that when I read Psalm 136 or 37, by the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
the people that came and said, they taunted us saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And as you read that, and it ends with that horrible text, that horrible, I, I mean, can we talk, say this about, it's a horrible image. Blessed is the one who dashes the heads of the little ones against the rock. You cannot read that dispassionately. When we read, your voice must capture the tone of the text. Go to now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries. James, I heard that preached one time, and the guy just read, Go to now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries and whatever else. Come on. Read it with the voice of God in keeping with the tone, expository reading. We need to read slowly, not fast. The Scriptures weren't written to be speed-read. I tell my students, if you can speed-read a book, it's not worth reading. No. Slowly. Pause. Lots of time for it to soak and sink into our hearts. Read slowly. You know, well, people pay me to prepare a sermon. No. The people come to worship to hear the voice of God. That's it. Um, prepare spiritually for the ministry of reading. I'm not saying the preacher has to do all the reading. I don't think so. But I think if we have people from the congregation reading Scripture, we need to have instruction on how to read. Why not? So that the people hear the voice of God through many different vehicles. We're, we're all gifts to the church. But you don't read for the sake of reading. You read for the sake of message. So we need to help each other read well. So that when you're stopped reading, people will say, I wish you'd kept reading. Because God was beginning to get through. Did you know that the whole book of Romans was written as to be read in one sitting, hearing in church? Have you ever done that? Galatians, whatever. Most of these books, they are the sermon. We need to subordinate the sermon to the Scripture. I mean, this is a given. Rick does this the best. I mean, expository preaching. The sermon is about the Scripture. Well, what else can we say? And with this, uh, a couple of more comments, and then we'll break. Evangelicals must rediscover the joy of reading and hearing the Scripture together with other believers. Not for private. It's public. Evangelicals must rediscover that in singing and praying the, ex the Scriptures, they express themselves in forms pleasing to God. We need to do this. Sing the Scriptures. Pray the Scriptures so that God's voice echoes and reverberates. Evangelicals must rediscover... Uh, uh, that, that's, that's enough for now. The place of the Scriptures in worship. I'm all for great preaching. 
But let's not get there too quickly. That doesn't mean that reading the Scripture has to be 30% of the time that the pastor's here. No, it means that we give ourselves to the reading of Scripture. Isn't that what Paul tells Timothy? Pay attention to the reading of Scripture. It's not just a matter of rote. It means when you're reading Scripture, let the Scriptures talk. I know it's a profane and crass illustration. It's like a jack-in-the-box. You know, you wind this thing up, and all of a sudden it pops. It's in there. As I stand before you, as I week to week in my Sunday school class, as I stand before the, before the class, my task is simply to let the jack out. It's there. It's not my jack. It's God's jack. And our task is to help people encounter God, whether it's in preaching or in the music, in whatever else we do. This is an audience with God. People need to meet Him, not the preacher or the musician. They need a meeting with God. How can we make that happen? Let's break for a few minutes, however long you want. And then we have uh, one more hour, and we can talk about leaders in worship.